The Laura Murphy Show, episode 43. Welcome to The Laura Murphy Show, the podcast that analyzes financial markets from the perspective of Austrian economics and Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept. Listen and learn as your hosts, Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara, explain how you can be part of building the 10%. Hey folks, you know, before there was LaraMurphy.com, there was the book that started it all. Carlos and I came together to write How Privatized Banking Really Works which married the insights of Austrian economics with Nelson Nash's Infinite Banking Concept, or IBC. If you haven't checked the book out yet, now it's available in ebook format, so really, he got no excuse at this point. We cover the history of money in the United States, relating it to the gold standard era, and then what happened as we moved to a fiat currency, talking about the politics and the economics, and then, of course, the relationship of Austrian business cycle theory and IBC to this history. Check it out. We have an easy link for you. It's at laramurphy.com slash ebook. That's L-A-R-A hyphen murphy.com slash ebook. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Lara Murphy Show. I'm one half of your hosts, Bob Murphy. With me as usual is Carlos. Carlos, how are things in Nashville? They're very good, Bob. In fact, um, I know there's another big um, tsunami down there in your part of the world, but I think it's going to miss us again. But other than that, we're doing great. Good. Very good. Yes, obviously, as we're recording this, uh, Hurricane Irma is hitting parts of the U.S. and, of course, elsewhere it hit already. So our thoughts and prayers are with all those people. But the topic for right now, for this particular episode of the Laura Murphy Show, we're going to start a new, I don't know if you want to call it series, but we're going to talk about best practices for IBC. So for the individual either running a household or a business who's using IBC, Carlson and I realized that there's a lot of maybe bad habits you could fall into, or there's certain principles that we need to reinforce just to make sure just you know that we know that on our part we're doing everything we can to make sure individuals who are into IBC especially if if you got into it because of of our outreach efforts we want to just make sure you have all the information and so in this particular episode we're going to talk about the proper way to handle policy loans and just make sure you're fully aware of some of the pitfalls involved so i think what we'll do here is i'll start and and show you the the joys of financing via IBC and how there's so much more freedom and flexibility. But as uh, Spider-Man would tell you, with freedom comes great responsibility. Right? So the, the benefit and the reason people are so attracted to IBC in the first place is it is correct to say that if you, you, know, you got a big ticket item, your daughter's getting married, you want to buy a new car, whatever it is, even in the long term, if you've been doing this a while, you're going to buy a house that instead of going to outside lenders, hey, just borrow against your IBC policy or policies if you have more than one. And there's lots of advantages to doing that. And that's what Nelson Nash means when he says becoming your own banker. He's saying rather than you borrowing money that outsiders have saved up, and so now you're beholden to them, in a sense, you know, you accumulate in your warehouse of wealth in one of these IBC policies, and then you borrow against it. 
And one of the virtues of that is we say, you know, we're talking to the public and we'll say things like, hey, unlike a conventional bank where you borrow money from them, they're going to do a credit check. They're going to check your sources of income. They're going to ask you what's the loan for. They're maybe going to make you sign on and they're going to get get all sorts of collateral against you. And there's going to be a, a schedule of repayments. And if you fall behind, they may come and start taking stuff from you. Okay. So that's not good. Jeez. And say, so guess what? When you borrow money from the life insurance company, they don't do any of that stuff. You just tell them how much you want to borrow and they send you the check or they deposit it right into your account. They don't ask you what you're going to use it for. They don't ask you, you know, they don't run a credit check on you. They don't ask even if you're employed. They don't even ask you if you're going to pay it back. You won't believe this, folks. They don't care if you do pay the loan back, right? And so people are sort of astonished and they think we're making something up. And then I get up and I explain how it works. So let me just very quickly recapitulate that standard uh, explanation just to make sure we all know exactly what's going on and how these policy loans work. But for then the the balance of this episode, I'm going to let Carlos handle most of this stuff. We want to explain to you that even though you have the freedom to take out big policy loans and not ever pay them back, in general, you don't want to do that, right? That's not a good thing to do. So even though you're allowed to do it, it's sort of irresponsible, except, you know, in very particular situations where that's part of your, you know, your plan and you're keeping other assets in place and you're fueling your your lifestyle as you're, you know, in your 80s or something, you're getting ready to, to move on. Okay, yeah. So we're we're not talking we're not saying a blanket rule here, but we just want to make sure people understand some of the pitfalls of just letting these policy loans go and why in general you want to what Nelson Nash calls is play honest banker with yourself. And if you're borrowing money against these things that you want to pay it back. So before we jump into that, though, let me just make sure we're all on the same page. And what exactly is a policy loan and how can it possibly be? What do you mean? Are you being metaphorical when you say the life insurance company doesn't care if you pay? What are you talking about? All right. So the way it works is, remember, you've got a dividend paying whole life insurance policy. That's the backbone. That's the the vehicle through which you implement IBC. And you're making your premium payments. The life insurance company knows that it's got this outstanding liability on its books, right? If you die, if you're the insured, then they got to pay the beneficiary whatever the death benefit is. And so you keep making those premium payments. The life insurance company is taking them and it's got to put it to work, right? They got to go buy assets because when you die, the check they write to the beneficiary is going to be bigger than the sum of the money that you've kicked in in premium payments. And so they obviously can't just put it in a vault with your name on it. They got to go put the money to work so they can earn a return. All right. So one of the things they can do, and this is all spelled out contractually, you know, they got to do something with the premium. They could go buy bonds. They could, you know, do all sorts of stuff with it. One of the things they can do is you as a policyholder can come to the life insurance company and say, hey, I would like to borrow money. I want to take a loan from you. And I'm going to use my cash surrender value as the collateral. And so, again, the life insurance company's got all this money coming in the the front door in terms of premium payments. It's got to put it to work. And one of the possible assets it could buy is an IOU from its own policyholder. And believe it or not, that type of investment from the life insurance company's perspective is the safest thing they could possibly buy. Because even if they buy treasuries from Uncle Sam, Strictly speaking, the U.S. government could default. But if you as a policyholder borrow money from the life insurance company you know, through a policy loan, 
your own life insurance policy, the cash surrender value is what the collateral is for that particular loan. So the life insurance company itself is guaranteeing that collateral. And so they, you know, they keep it on the books and it's rolling over at whatever the policy loans contractually specified interest rate is. So you're definitely borrowing money from the life insurance company. You're not taking money, quote, out of your policy. It's like on the side, you've borrowed money from them and it's rolling over at interest and you can pay it down if you want or just let it ride. But the point is the life insurance company knows ultimately you're going to be good for that because they themselves are guaranteeing the collateral. And that's why they don't run a credit check. They don't care if you're employed or not. They don't care when you pay it back because they're earning that contractually specified return. And, you know, you say, well, how do they ever get paid back? Well, you can make payments yourself towards it, in which case, you know, they obviously keep track of it and go ahead and knock down the principal and what have you. But even if you don't pay it back in terms of you going out of your way to pull money out of your cash flow to send payments to them earmarked, for knocking down that policy loan that's on the books, at some point, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to surrender the policy, right? Like you just might stop making premium payments and say, yeah, I'm done with this policy. Surrender it. Is there anything left in the, you know, in the cash value to give me in the balance due? Or the insured dies, and then they got to go set a, you know, the, the benefit check to the beneficiary. So in either of those scenarios, what they'll do is if there's an outstanding policy loan that's been growing at interest at that point, they get square. And so if, you know, the policy loan, you originally took out a $10,000 loan, let's say, and now it's grown to 13000 because you've never serviced it, you just let it roll, and then you die and the death benefit check was supposed to be $100,000, well, they would only send the net 87000 to the beneficiary. They would divert that 13000 to extinguish what the amount of that policy loan was at that moment. So that's when they get paid off. Or if you just you're still alive, but you stop making premium payments because you know what? I don't want this policy anymore. I'm going to surrender it. Then at that point, if they thought, oh, we we owe you right now $40,000 in cash surrender value up, oh, but wait a minute, there's a $13,000 outstanding policy loan balance. They would go ahead and you know settle that up. So you'd only get on that, what, 27,000. All right. So that's the sense. So they know they're getting paid back for sure. They just don't know when. Okay, so that's what I mean when I say from the life insurance company's perspective, taking incoming premium payments and, quote, investing them or putting them to work in the form of policy loans to their policyholders is the safest type of investment they could make because no matter what, they're getting paid back. You can't default on a policy loan. Even from your perspective, you say, geez, I never devoted a single cent to servicing that thing. Even so, the life insurance company is going to be made whole and they're going to earn that guaranteed return that's built right into the the design of that loan. Okay, so again, that's why, once you understand the mechanics and what's going on, that's why it is entirely true. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's not some you know silly marketing gimmick. It is entirely true when we tell people, you want to wean yourself off of dependence on outside lenders and commercial banks in particular, if you're a business owner, and build up sizable cash values in one or more of these IBC type policies because then you you know finance your activities flow your cash flow through these things because look at all the the generous terms you know look at how much more flexible it is if you hit a bad month or two you don't need to service these loans it's fine nobody's going to come knocking on your no one's going to seize your car or your business assets or whatever so that's the the benefit of it but 
now that we've explained it and why that works and it's not magic, you see how it works. Of course, everything in life, you know, <laughs> you get more freedom. There's more responsibility here. So you don't want to abuse this, this unbelievable freedom that you have if you're allowed to borrow via policy loans through a dividend paying whole life policy. So now that I've prepped everyone, Carlson, reminded them of the great joy of financing things via IBC, why don't you come in and be the party pooper and start warning them about, you know, hey, let's let's be responsible. <laughs> okay. Um, well, no, I, that that's a that's a very good explanation uh, on how it works, Bob. Um, I think we are, we have to remember um, that what Nelson Nash has always said is that the need for financing is actually greater than the need for life insurance. And so his entire approach, his whole idea, uh, the, the IBC concept is, is about financing. It's a cash flow system that you're managing as well as a financing system. A lot of people mistakenly think that dividend-paying whole life is just a, a vehicle where you can uh, save money. You know, just because it's very safe, uh, you can put money there, it has good growth in there, and, and it's just a safe uh, place to store your money. And it is. But um, aside from all the wonderful attributes that Dividend Pain Whole Life has, and there are many, we have to recognize that policy loans are an entire different undertaking and yet at the same time, it is central to practicing IBC. So what I'm trying to say here is that when you practice IBC, you have to recognize what it is that you're doing is you're actually managing money. You're managing cash flows and you're financing with these cash flows using policy loans. Now, um, as Bob has already explained to you why it is that there is so much flexibility in these policy loans and that, in a sense, you have great discretionary privileges on whether you should pay the policy loans or not at all, if you wish. Uh, Bob is correct, is that you you should be very uh, responsible about paying back policy loans. In fact, Nelson Nash has always insisted you must pay your policy loans back. And so he always steers in, in his book people into setting up schedules, you know, to pay back the policy loans. And there are various types of schedules that you can create yourself. It's up to you. You have uh, the discretionary flexibility to pay back these loans as you see fit. Uh, you could do it on a monthly basis. You can decide to do it on an annual basis. If you're a business owner, you probably may want to um, use windfalls that you're able to create through additional profits in your business to pay policy loans off. Or because business owners uh, will always build up assets, you know, they'll buy assets, they'll build them up, and then they want to sell those assets for a profit. Well, the proceeds from the sale of those business assets can also be used 
to pay back policy loans. So a business owner may not want to pay his policy loans on a monthly basis or an annual basis. He may want to go for several years using time, you know, as his best ally and then with windfalls that he can create and or the sale of assets, you know, can use that those proceeds to to pay off these policy loans. And so the thing to recognize, if you're looking at IBC correctly and what you're doing here, uh, every time you take out a policy loan, you're using your cash value as the collateral and you're getting this money from the insurance company. When you pay back those policy loans, in a sense, you're removing the collateral off the cash values and you're able to use the cash values again and again, which is the whole process of operating your your IBC policy uh, as a cash flow system and as a financing system very correctly and very responsibly. As we all know that the IBC policy has a special design, and because of that special design that it has, uh, you should never really be fearful that the uninterrupted compounding that's going on with these policies are always going to stay ahead of, of the policy loan itself, okay? Because you're never going to be able to be responsible for paying back a policy loan if, you know, because of the way the insurance company allows you to take loans out. They only let you take them out if you have cash value there. So this is a very important piece to all this. I would also suggest to you that, and Bob, if we can do this, it might be helpful if we could maybe post on the on, on this podcast and the, you know, where we put our links in there to, uh, look at, um, Title 26, uh, and Section 7702 of the, um, Internal Revenue, uh, Services Code on Life Insurance, you know, Sections A through G and also Sections 101, uh, A. You know, if you, you may not want to go in and read all that legalese, but, it's a good starting place to understand why you would want to practice IBC. Because with these sections in the code, you can see that if you're practicing IBC correctly and responsibly, uh, even the IRS protects you here. Uh, any gains that you have are not taxable to you in any year. And you can take out uh, these gains every year without having any kind of tax consequences. And because the death benefit goes to your beneficiaries, you know, tax-free, income tax-free, the goal in obtaining a dividend-paying whole life policy and practicing IBC is to uh, be able to put money into the policy and wind up taking out so much more without ever having to pay any kind of tax on it. But, of course, uh, one of the very first best practices that you must be uh, practicing and be very knowledgeable of is that the goal is to, you know, get to death so that you can never have to pay any tax whatsoever. So the goal is to reach the point of death still with that policy in force. And so one of the first things you must realize is that you shouldn't ever surrender the policy. If you surrender a policy, 
then there is the potential that you may have a tax event. Can I let me stop you here for a second, Carlos? Um, so yes, folks, we remember what we're doing right now is episode forty-three. So if you're just hearing this in your car or something, and you want to go look up these things, yeah, we're gonna have um, one or more links. You know, Carlos has talked about specific links, the IRS code. I'll see if we can shoot you right to there. But you're gonna go and look at larmurphy.com in the podcast and and look at episode forty-three. Will we have any links? Let me just paraphrase a little bit of what Carlos has said so far to make sure you're with us because now we're getting into the the nitty gritty where we're going to talk about some subtleties here and we want to make sure that our listeners know, you know, they go into this with eyes wide open. So number one, when it comes to, you know, the tax treatment and stuff, remember money that you're using to pay premiums is after tax, after income tax, right? So as opposed to, you're getting paid from your employer or whatever, and you want to put money into a 401k or if you're in the educational sector or 403b and people talk about, Oh, it's tax qualified. And you know, all the, the, you know, the gurus will tell you that's so advantageous because you're getting to put your money in before taxes are taken out. So that that's not the case here. So you're with your paycheck, if you're an employee or whatever, you, you know, you're a business owner and you're paying yourself dividends or taking out profit you do your normal income tax first, and then with the after-tax money, that's what you use to pay premiums. And now what Carlos is talking about is saying the internal growth of those things, the current tax treatment, if you've, if you've set up a correct policy the way you know we would tell you to do and the way that if you go to one of our people off the IBC practitioner finder, we'll, we'll show you how to do it to make sure it's what's not called MACT, um, you know, standard policy. It builds up cash uh, without internal taxation. And the other thing Carlos was mentioning is there's a way that you can use these policies as a source of cash flow for your business or your household such that there is a way you can, in a sense, have taken more dollars out of the policy over its lifetime than you put into it in the form of premium payments. But you have to be careful how you do it. All right, so make sure you understand this. And if you don't get it, you know, make sure you're working with somebody who fully understands these distinctions. Because one thing is, one complication, if you're taking out dividend payments, and remember, in general, Nelson Nash is going to say you shouldn't do that. You should have it that the dividends get rolled over and buy more life insurance. But if for various reasons you did want to go ahead and take dividends out of your policy, the point at which you've recovered what's called your cost basis meaning if you've taken out more dividends lifetime than you've paid in in premium payments, at that point, the IRS is going to say, okay, at this point, you've earned income on net from this thing, and so we're going to start applying income tax, even if the policy is still in force. So what people who really know what they're doing will say is, okay, if you have pulled out in dividend payments from the policy, your cost basis, then at that point, switch to taking out policy loans. Because remember, you know, this isn't a gimmick. This is, think about it, a, a loan is not net income, right? And so it's it's cash flow. It's providing cash for you. You can go buy something with the money, but if you're taking out a loan, that's not net income the way a dividend payment is. And so that's why the, you know, the tax treatment is the way it is. Again, it's not a gimmick. It makes perfect sense, you know, from an accounting perspective that if you want to be able to withdraw cash or gain access to cash, because of your policy and you do it via a policy loan, that's not a taxable event. All right. And so that's what's going on. But now again, the big complication here is, and you got to make sure you get this 
if for some reason you surrendered the policy and you've taken out a bunch of policy loans such that you've, in a sense, pulled more money out of the policy than you've put in over its history in the form of premium payments, and then you surrender it. Now the IRS is going to say, wait a minute, this thing is done. What used to be called policy loans have been paid off and extinguished, and now we're just going to look and wait a minute. You pulled more out of this thing than you put in in terms of just naive dollar flows. That's a taxable event, even if in your mind you said, no, geez, I, I switched to policy loans and I thought I heard that policy loans aren't taxable so long as the policy is enforced. But once you collapse the policy, surrender it, everything gets settled. And now the IRS is going to look at that history of dollar flows. OK, so why don't you go ahead, Carlson, you know, say that in your words, but I just want to make sure because that's kind of a subtle point for a lot of people. Right. Well, again, you know, this, uh, let me underscore the word potential, that you may have a potential taxable event if you surrender the policy. Uh, now, one way to think about how you could potentially have a tax is if uh, you've had the policy for a long time and you've taken out a lot of policy loans and maybe you're one of those people that decided you weren't going to pay any policy loans back. And so now you see that your cash value and your policy loans are too close together. <laughs> you see, there's not a lot, there's no capital base in between them. You see what I'm saying? And so one mistake that happens is that an individual may forget what it is that he's doing here and may be thinking, I think I want to surrender the policy to to pay off the policy loans. You know, the idea that I've got all this debt here and, but obviously there's cash value here that'll pay it off. If I surrender the policy, they'll just subtract it out of the cash value and, uh, and that's it. I'm done. Well, yes, but maybe not simply because if, like Bob says, if you wound up taking out more out of the policy over the course of all these years in the way of policy loans or tax-free dividends uh, that went above that cost basis, uh, by collapsing the policy, surrendering the policy, you're, you're making all of that show itself from the standpoint that the IRS is going to see that you actually did that. And now, by surrender to policy, you're actually triggering the life insurance company to go ahead and pay itself out out of the remaining cash value that's there. But now you've got to deal with the IRS because the IRS is now saying you took out more than you put in. And so you owe a tax on that. It becomes taxable at that point. But that that's what I'm saying is that one common mistake is an individual thinking that they want to go ahead and surrender the policy, you know, to pay off the policy loans and just not have to deal with this anymore. You always have to remember that if you've surpassed that cost basis, there is the potential there that you are going to trigger a taxable event. So the goal is not to surrender the policy. The goal in the whole strategy of IBC, the whole idea is to get to death. So that it is the death benefit that is used to pay off all the policy loans and avoid any tax on any money, even if you took more than the, co than the cost basis. You never have to deal with the tax. 
And on top of that, of course, the beneficiary winds up getting the death benefit income tax free. So now that that is the completion of, of practicing IBC, you know, correctly. Now, if you happen to know, and you can find out whether uh, you even, if you know that you haven't surpassed the cost basis, then if you surrender the policy, then there's not going to be any taxable event. But you will have to know that. You just you you can you can you can look that up. You you can re- inquire. Have I passed the cost basis? And if you want to be done with the policy and you want to surrender it, there's not going to be any any uh, any taxable event. Another way could be is that if you have a lot of cash value in the policy, you have so much cash value, and then you surrender the policy, and the life insurance company pays out its policy loans out of the cash value, you know, because you're surrendering while you're living, and there may be so much cash value there that you're able to pay the tax and maybe or maybe not have money left over. So there, you're not completely locked in, not surrendering the policy, you know, but it's under those cases, making sure you haven't surpassed the cost basis. Another common uh, mistake that's made is when you get down the road and you may think you can't continue to make the premium payments on the policy to keep it in force. A lot of people uh, are not aware, and you should be aware, that there are ways to restructure the policy in such a way so that the moving parts of the policy, whether it's PUAs or whether it's dividends or even the death benefit is partially surrendered, not totally surrendered, partially surrendered, or they're directed in such a way so that it makes the premium payment. You yourself are not coming out of pocket. It's being taken internally from the policy. And that restructure can keep your policy in force until you die. So realizing that you have that very important option is uh, is very important. So uh, we're hitting on probably the most critical aspect of practicing IBC is, is these specific things. And every... Every individual, whether it's a member of the general public or even financial professionals, should be fully aware of this because this is how you can practice, you know, IBC, get the most out of it and uh, do it very responsibly. Another thing that I would uh, suggest could be a good uh, best practice, and uh, this should be common sense, but a lot of times it's not, it doesn't occur to people that... Um, if you don't have uh, the resources to pay a policy loan back, either on an annual basis or say you've gone several years and you haven't made any, any payments on a, on a policy loan, you can at least pay the annual interest every year. If you do that, that's obviously going to slow down and, uh, you know, and keep the loan charge from, you know, compounding, you see. And so, uh, in, in effect, you're operating with an interest-only loan in that sense. So that's that's something that 
that you can do. Uh, again, it's it's how you want to manage your your policy, your 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 money. So that that would be a, another good uh, practice to keep in mind in practicing IBC. Um, what I'm trying to say is that you need to understand that you're actually monitoring this policy. You see, you're managing money, you're managing cash flow, you're managing financing here. And so learn uh, to monitor your policy. Keep an eye on, on your cost basis and on your gains at all times. And uh one sure way to do this, which is uh, something I'm recommending here very, very strongly, is to do an annual review of your policy. You know, every year, uh, life insurance companies will send out a snapshot of the year on your policy. And this is a great opportunity to come get a hold of your authorized IBC practitioner and say, hey, I want to go over my my annual statement on my policy. And at that point, I, I highly recommend that you ask a lot of questions, uh, become very familiar with the terminology that's on this, this annual statement, because it's going to show you how the policy is progressing, you know, in that last year. And you get one of these every year. So at that point, you can understand and, and see how the policy works, how it's progressing. And then one other uh, best practice uh, item that I would like to reiterate here is uh, what they call in-force illustrations. Now, um, these are things that uh, the life insurance companies will provide you. It's, just, it's making a call and asking for an in-force illustration on your policy from the time of your request and then you may say to them, can you project out how this policy will do, say, for the next five years? And it's a good thing to do because the, the, the life insurance company has taken into account the crediting interest that's going on, the, you know, the rate that's going on on these policies. And it can, you know, it gives you a way to look down the corridor of the future to see what you're heading into. And at that point, you know, you may want to make some adjustments. Again, you might want to maybe start paying some interest down just to slow up, you know, the compounding because you haven't been able to pay policy loans. Or you may even want to restructure the policy a lot earlier than, you know, you first thought. So these enforced illustrations are very important, you know, especially if you understand that you're in control here. You know, in the final analysis, you're the one that are ta that's taking out the policy loans. You're the ones that's, that's in charge of paying and back. See, so any available help that you can get, you know, to make sure that you're managing your money well, utilize any of these best practices that we've been talking about on this particular podcast. Yeah, all very good advice. Let me just throw out some hypothetical numbers just to make sure people are getting the big picture here. So let's see. You're 35 years old and you take out one of these, you know, you, you set up one of these IBC structured dividend paying whole life policies. And let's say you're putting in $10,000 a year in annual premium. Okay. And you've structured it properly so that some of it's like the, the base and some of it's, but, but 
whatever the you know specifics are, it's fine. But let's say out of pocket, you're actually devoting ten thousand dollars per year of your cash flow to this thing, and you don't touch it. And so thirty years go by. Okay, so you've been putting in ten thousand dollars a year. So out of pocket, you've contributed three hundred thousand dollars into this thing. So that's what your cost basis is, right? So it's it's very crude and naive. They know they don't worry about time value of money. They just say literally how many dollars went into it. And they don't care whether it was a dollar thirty years ago or last week. That's how they they reckon this stuff. So you say, okay, I've put in three hundred thousand. Now thirty years have gone by. So what? You're sixty five. I think I said the guy was thirty five when he started. So now the person's sixty five. The person retires from his normal office job. And remember, Nelson Nash doesn't like the word retirement, and that's you know <laughs> fine. But the person's thinking, okay, I want to start drawing against this thing as I go and golf a lot and give money to my grandkids and take fancy vacations or whatever. So he's got plenty now of cash surrender value. Right? He calls the life insurance company. He's got well over five hundred thousand dollars. You know, maybe even more than six hundred thousand. It depends. You know what interest rates were in terms of the bonds and whatever, and what the internal rate of return is if you want to think like that in terms of the policy. But the point is, you've been putting money into this thing for 30 years. You're going to have a lot more available to you than the sum of what you put into it, right? It's better than just literally putting under your mattress, right? So he's going to have a lot more than $300,000 in cash surrender value. And so if he wants to, he can go ahead and, you know, if he's got some big business venture he wants to start or whatever, yeah, he can take out a $500,000 policy loan if he wants, He's allowed to do that. It's his money, right? With no penalties the way if he tried to pull that out from a 401k thing or whatever, you know, if he the depending on the timing and so forth, you know, he might get hit with penalties. All right? So he goes ahead and does that. And what Carlos and I are making sure you understand in that kind of scenario, suppose he borrows out, suppose he borrows out 500,000 and then for some reason decides, you know, maybe he invests it in a business enterprise that blows up in his face up oh, and he loses it. Okay. And then he says, geez, wow, I wasn't expecting that. I'm a lot poorer now than I thought. You know, I don't want to keep making these $10,000 annual payments. I'm just going to collapse the policy. So what we're saying is if he does that, that the IRS is going to say, in addition to whatever happens, you know, cause there would still be some little bit of you know cash value left and whatever, but put that aside the fact that he took out a 500000 So the policy loan, when he takes it out, that's not income. It's a loan, right? A loan is not income. It's not net income in an accounting sense, and the IRS doesn't treat it as, as such either. So it's not like his taxes that year. It's as if he just got a $500,000 windfall from somewhere. No, it's a loan. It's an asset to him, you know. but then there's a liability, a lien against his other assets that he's been accumulating in this thing, right? He owes the life insurance company $500,000. That's on their books. It's a loan. But the point is he surrenders that policy. So the life insurance company is going to pay itself off that loan and then give him whatever the balance is. So now at that point, the IRS is going to say, wait a minute, in addition to whatever the, you know, the rounding stuff is with it, with the balance, the fact that you only put in 300,000 and took out that $500,000 loan, in a sense, you got 200,000 free and clear out of this vehicle. That's now completely surrendered. And you don't owe a loan to anybody. The loan's paid off. So you now, we are going to charge you income tax on that $200,000 gain. All right. So that's what what Carlos is getting at here. So maybe one way of putting it is just make sure one, one safety technique is to make sure you always got a nice little cushion for yourself 
of, you know, don't borrow up to the extreme limit all the time. And the, partly why we thought it was important to do this podcast is there are some people who, you know, the, the, what they're saying is perfectly correct and they're showing various strategies or whatever. And you might think like, oh, to really push this thing to the limit, sort of, you know, put it in the wind tunnel test and really crank as much out of this and get as much leverage, if that's the word you want to use as thing. Like, I, I want to just put money in and borrow it right out to the limit. And how much can I push this thing? And that's great, you know, theoretically to go ahead and do that and just see what it's capable of. But we just want to make sure you realize in general, you don't want to live your life or run your business like that. Because if you, again, if you miscalculate and you get into financial trouble such that it's hard for you to make that premium payment, you have to realize if for some reason you say, geez, I really think the best thing for me to do now is collapse this policy. If at that point you have taken more out, including policy loans than you ever put in in premium payments, the IRS is going to say that's that's a net gain you got from this thing and we're going to charge you income tax on it. And so just make sure you're aware of that. Again, we don't, we're not trying to scare you. Obviously, all the benefits of IBC are still true that we talk about. But again, seeing certain people do illustrations and show clients or prospects things, scenarios that involve huge policy loans and paying them back and this and that, and you, you know, you're know you pushing it up to the limit each time, just realize if your calculations are off and you find yourself in a hole that if, if your escape option is to collapse the policy and yet you've been borrowing heavily against it, make sure you realize there is this, this hitch. Again, as Carl said, if you can, as long as you know, you, you die and the policy is still in force, then, you know, they pay themselves with a death benefit. And so that stuff's all still true. And then whatever that net is goes to the beneficiary or beneficiaries income tax free. So that's still all, all fine. But again, the, the issue is if for some reason you got in a pinch and realized, geez, I can't even make these premium payments. And since I've been borrowing so aggressively, I can't even use the cash value in a sense to pay the premium payments until I catch my breath again. Another reason why you in general want to have a nice cushion in there in case you hit a hit trouble and your cash flow is interrupted, that you can turn to the cash value that's free and clear to what it sense make those contractual premium payments if you still have to. And then the last thing I'll say, Carlson, I'll turn it back to you. What Carlson was mentioning is even if you did find yourself in that hole, it's not like, oh, geez, I wish I had listened. Again, it's possible. Make sure you talk to someone who knows the various options that you can restructure the thing so you can just partially surrender some of that death benefit while keeping the policy in force. And maybe that's the way you can sort of make it more manageable on your end to effectively pay the premium payments, keep the policy in force. And the way you know that you're paying for it is by shrinking the available death benefit. So there's those options too that are available and just make sure you, you realize that. But the important thing for this podcast is we want to make sure you realize if you're aggressively borrowing against these things and you're always running up to the limit so that you know most of the time you never have even a cent in cash value available because you've borrowed it out for whatever your project is, yeah, you're allowed to do that, but it's kind of risky. All right, so I'll, I'll stop there, Carlos. Any, any final remarks for our listeners? <laughs> yeah, and I just want to say it's risky only from the standpoint of the possible uh, potential tax event. That's the only way in the sense that it's risky. Um, quite frankly, there's there's absolutely no reason to have to surrender a policy, you know, 
even if our uh, only if our entire economic system was actually derailing, then you might want to do it then. But short of that, there's there's really no reason to surrender the policy simply because you have options here and you can make the policy run all the way through until death, which is the goal here. And always remember that you can restructure the policy in such a way that it'll keep paying the premiums, you know, until you die. And that's the main goal. That's where you want to reach uh, in doing all this, because even if you took out all the gains out, uh, lots of them, you can avoid ever having to pay any kind of tax, income tax on, on having taken them out if you die with the policy in force. So that's the... That's the main thing to always remember. And uh, if you remember those few little things there that are critical here, you, you, you can practice IBC with full confidence. And so uh, it's like Bob said in the beginning, you know, um, practice IBC correctly and responsibly and it'll work fabulously for you. And with those words of wisdom, we will wrap this episode up. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've just finished another episode of The Laura Murphy Show. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to do your part in building the 10%. The Laura Murphy Show is provided with the understanding that the staff and contributors of lauramurphy.com are not here and engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult your own professional tax, legal, or financial advisor. Thank you.